You may have picked up this morning that uh, there's this current of choice, choosings, decisions that we make. A song that Clark and Amy sang, two sets of Joneses, which will you be? The crowd or the cross? That is our beginning and ending question today. And it's a choice that we all must make at some point in our lives. And this decision of the crowd or the cross is not a one-and-done type decision either. It's one that presents itself time and time again in our daily lives as we seek to become fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it was Jesus who told us to daily take up our crosses and follow after him. And Jesus faced this choice on what we remember and celebrate as Palm Sunday to choose the crowd and their desire to exalt him as king and follow him as their Messiah and and political leader that they were looking for or to choose the way of the cross which would lead to agonizing pain and ultimate death within just a few short days. But you see, Jesus understood and recognized the misunderstanding and the impure motives and the self-exalting nature of the crowd. And he kept his gaze fixed on the cross, which was the reason and the purpose that he came in the first place this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 12. And as you're turning there, I'm going to ask you to do something that's impossible. I want you to forget for about the next 30 minutes or so, that you know about Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, I say that's impossible because really you can't unlearn what you've already learned. I mean, we can't just say, I want to forget this and then forget it and it's not there, okay? Uh, If we know it, we can't unknow it. We can choose to act as though we don't. So just humor me for a few minutes and, and let's pretend we don't understand or we don't know about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I ask you to do that Because to best understand John chapter 12, you need to place yourself in this story. You need to be in this era with these people and allow yourself only the information that's available to them at this time. But asking you to not, you know, know about the death and the resurrection of Christ, while it's an impossible task, will help us understand. But I know it's kind of like watching a suspense thriller with a surprise ending a second time. Uh, if you've watched the movie The Sixth Sense and then you watched it a second time, it didn't have the same anticipation and suspense the second time through because as you watch the movie, you already knew he was dead, all right? And if you haven't seen the movie, sorry for the spoiler there that, that, uh, that's on that. Um, but, you know, that's what happens as we read the gospel accounts sometimes. We see stuff and we read what's going on, we read the story, and we know how the story ends already. And so we can pick up on the clues and we see how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. But sometimes that can cause us to have an air of superiority uh, or, or, or even a spirit of disdain toward the people and the individuals in the story. So play along with me as I set the scene as to what's taking place in John chapter 12. First of all, the Jewish people were looking and waiting and yearning for the Messiah to come. At this point in history, they were under the oppression and the tyranny of the Roman Empire And their anticipation for the Messiah, who in their minds was going to come and liberate them from their oppressors, was so thick you could almost cut it with a knife. 
Generation after generation had heard the prophecies about the Messiah who was to come. Mothers sang them to their children uh, from from infancy in, in forms of songs. Children memorized scriptures and passages of scriptures about the Messiah from the earliest age. And fathers would sometimes speak of the Messiah, maybe with tears in their eyes, as, as they longed for, for a better, safer, more secure future for their children. And rabbis and priests and, and, and religious teachers ensured that every man, woman, boy, and girl who sat under their teacher or under their teachings knew about the Messiah and that the Messiah was coming. And they filled them with hope of this one who was going to come and who would deliver them. But remember that in this day, there's no mass media to get the word out about anything. There was no MNN or headline news you can turn to. You know MNN, the Messiah News Network that they would tune to. Uh, there was, there, that wasn't there. People couldn't just Google Messiah and then it would pop up, you know, four million hits about Jesus and what he had done and all of his miracles and pictures and, and you know, eyewitness testimonies and blogs and all this kind of stuff. Uh, the Jerusalem Today didn't give you a running list of, the, of Jesus' activities from the day before and where you could find him today and, you know, what, what was on his agenda. I mean, it just, there was no mass media. Everything happened by word of mouth. And so by the time Jesus entered Jerusalem during the Passover festival at the end of his third year of ministry, he was the center of every conversation. There are these people and all they're talking about is, is he the one? Is this the Messiah? We've heard all these things. People say, you know, do you know I heard he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Excuse me. And they had leftovers. Oh, yeah, well, my cousin said he knew the man who was born blind, but that Jesus healed, and he told him what color tunic he was wearing. So it was a real healing, you know. People are like, well, I've heard that the lame walk and the deaf have been made to hear, and they're comparing all these stories. And somebody says, oh, yeah, well, my hairstylist cut the hair of one of the lepers that Jesus healed. And, okay, Jesus healed a leper, but the hairstylist bit's creative license. All right, you, you, but you get the idea. I mean, people are talking, and there's this buzz. There's this, this electricity, this anticipation. Maybe he's the one. No one had ever seen these miracles. No one had ever heard the teachings with such power and authority that Jesus brought. There's this incredible anticipation. Will Jesus be here? Is this going to be the time that he's going to tell everyone, yes, indeed, I am the Messiah. Now is the time. So look at John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. It says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Well, why was there such a large crowd? Well, it's because it was the Passover festival. This was one of three festivals that took place each year that required every male living in Israel to attend. And so these men would come and many of them would bring uh, their their wives or their children or or at least some of their their family with them. Uh, And the regular population of Jerusalem was about 50,000 people. But during this festival, that population would swell to 100,000 or more. Some speculated could have been 120,000 or or, or even more than that who were coming to the city for this Passover. And the city wouldn't hold all of those people. So on all the hillsides and any of the plains surrounding the city of Jerusalem, you had just throngs of people camped in their tents and lean-tos and and around campfires just huddled, uh, making themselves at home as they celebrated the Jewish Passover festival. So there were all of these people and everybody was looking for one man. 
They were all looking for Jesus. Is he going to be here? What's he going to do this time? You see, the common people were looking for Jesus, and they were ready to bear arms at a moment's notice and, and, and go to war because the Messiah in their minds was going to come and say, now is the time. Let's be free. I'm going to liberate you. We are going to be the, the number one political uh, nation in the world. God is going to honor us and protect us. We're his chosen people, so we will be exalted. So the common people are saying, When the Messiah is here, when he gives the word, we're going to take up arms and we are going to rise to dominance in the world. But not just the common people were looking for Jesus. The religious leaders were looking for Jesus. Now, they weren't looking so they could go place their faith in him. They wanted to try and discredit him and then show the people that, ah, this man, he's not really the Messiah because, and they would give their reasons as to why he wasn't the Messiah. He's a liar. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. They were trying to find a way to discredit him. Or if they had the opportunity, they were going to kill him. They were just going to go ahead and end his life so that people wouldn't follow after him any longer. And government officials were watching for Jesus too because when crowds were this large, They were like a powder keg, and a single spark could set that off. And so the government officials are watching, and they're looking, because if there's any hint of a revolt or a rebellion that takes place, they were going to send their troops in to squash that rebellion, to keep those people uh, from revolting against the government. So John tells us that Jesus is on his way. And you say, well, well, where was Jesus on his way from? Does it even matter where Jesus was coming from? Oh, it, it really matters where Jesus was coming from. He was coming from Bethany, which was a city about two miles from Jerusalem. And it was in Bethany that just a few weeks earlier, Jesus had performed the culminating miracle of his ministry. He, lay, he raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, it's interesting to note that as Jesus got closer and closer to the cross... He performed miracles less and less. And not only did the miracles decrease in number and end shortly after Jesus arrived in Jerusalem uh, during the Passover celebration, but Jesus' call and the demands that he placed upon his followers grew more and more difficult. So fewer miracles and higher demands of what it meant to be his follower. People came to Jesus to see signs and wonders and miracles, but they heard about servanthood. They heard Jesus talk about sacrifice, and ultimately Jesus talked to them about death, that they needed to die to themselves and come and follow after him. And you know what people did? They turned and walked away, said, no, 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 I didn't sign up for that. Miracles and signs and wonders, yeah, that's great. Sacrifice, servanthood, death, mm, I don't want anything to do with that. But in John chapter 11, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead for four days. So turn back to chapter 11, verse 45. I want you to see the result of this miracle. John 11, verse 45. It says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him, meaning in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, we're going to get to their meeting here in a few minutes, but I just want you to note that the people were telling each other what had happened. I told you word of mouth was the way information got out. And people are saying, did you hear Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? He was D-E-A-D, dead, 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 four days dead. And Jesus called him forth from the tomb. 
It was pretty big news that these people were talking about. Now go back to John chapter 12, verse 17, to see how this ties together. Verse 17 says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. So it says Jesus was on his way. Where was he on his way from? He was coming from Bethany where he had raised Lazarus from the dead with these people who wouldn't stop talking about it. Well, we can understand that. I mean, if you saw someone raise someone from the dead, you're going to be talking about that going, wow, that was pretty impressive. And so these people are coming into the city saying, Here he comes. Here's Jesus. And do you know what he did? In case you haven't heard, let me tell you. And they began to speak of him raising Lazarus from the dead. And so the city is just abuzz with this news. Is the Messiah coming? Where is he? You've got hundreds of thousands of people around there everywhere. And then finally, you see wave after wave of people begin moving and running. Because people are saying, here he comes. He's finally here. Over there, coming in from Bethany. And so people started going. Everybody who was able rushed to see this Jesus. And so we see the enthusiasm of the crowd. And they are so excited that Jesus, maybe the Messiah, is coming. And verses 13 through 15 show us that they were looking for this Messiah to be their political king. Their political ruler to free them from tyranny, oppression uh, from the other nations But we also see that as they're saying these things, Jesus is giving them a picture saying, yes, I am the Messiah, but it's a completely different picture. It tells us in verses 13 through 15, we heard read earlier that they pulled palm branches off and they waved them as Jesus came by. These palm branches symbolized political peace and victory, showing they were thinking about political uh, freedom. They envisioned a Messiah who was going to wrench the power and the authority out of the hands of the Roman oppressors and bring their long-awaited freedom and peace. And as Jesus came into town, the other gospels tell us that people laid their cloaks on the ground so the donkey could walk on them. And they were shouting, Hosanna. And the word Hosanna means save. Literally, it means save. And so as he's coming into town, they're yelling, save. And the way they're saying it in the context of all that's going on, it's more of a demand than it is a plea saying, basically, save us now. We're ready. You give the word and we are going to go. We trust you. We will follow you even to our death because we know that you are the Messiah, the anointed, the long-awaited one, and we are ready. And you see scenes like this had played out about 100 years earlier uh, during the Maccabean Revolution. The Maccabeans had led uh, the Israelites to go out and to war against nations who were, who were uh, oppressing them at that time. And they won their freedom. And as the, they came back into town, the people waved these palm branches celebrating their victory from their oppressors uh, to the point that their coins, they inscribed palm branches on their coins as a way of remembering that God had given them victory in these battles. And so this kind of resembled a a low-budget ticker tape parade as Jesus is coming into town and they're waving the branches and everybody's all excited. Uh, And the Romans had these massive parades. When they would come in after going to foreign lands and conquering new nations, people would gather uh, in the streets and they would parade their captives and they would bring their plunder from war, their exotic animals and their fine fine jewels that they would find in these areas and the cloths and, and so many of the other things, these delicacies they would bring and they would parade down the streets and people would celebrate and say, 
we're number one, we're number one, you know, we, we ruled over you. And so uh, the Romans had these massive parades, and we could even see these Roman soldiers there watching Jesus come in, and they're kind of chuckling, going, can you believe those guys? And the guy's riding on a donkey, and they're waving palm branches. They're these poor, you know, common people. Who do they think they are? And they may have laughed and, and ridiculed and scoffed at Jesus, some of the same soldiers who a few days later would inflict such pain and agony upon him. But little did they know that the man at the center of the attention would be the victor. He would be the conqueror for all of eternity within just a few short days. They may have scoffed, but God didn't scoff. God exalted him to the point that he would be called the Prince of Peace and he would rule on his throne forever. And the Bible tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow to him as Lord. And so the Roman soldiers didn't see it then, but it was going to happen within a few short days. And so the crowd quoted part of Psalm 118 saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a messianic Psalm and remembering all that God had done and, and bringing the Messiah. But then we see the crowd veer from the Psalm by adding, blessed is the King of Israel. And you feel the tension of the moment again, because that's not in Psalm 118. And it reminds us that the people are looking for this political king, this deliverer in that way. But that's not the king that Jesus was going to be. That's not how Jesus was going to bring deliverance and freedom to the people. And so the question begins to say, what will the people do when Jesus doesn't give the freedom they want? When Jesus doesn't act the way they want him to? When Jesus doesn't give them the freedom that they were desiring, what would their response be? Well, you don't know about the death and the resurrection all that went on, so you don't know that yet, all right? So that, that's a question that's looming in our minds. But Jesus was not going to come as the kind of king they expected. People recognized the prophecy of Zechariah 9. In verses 14 and 15, we see that Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. And they say, see, there's the Messiah. The, 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 the king is going to come and is going to lead us. So Jesus was indeed saying, I'm the Messiah, because he's fulfilling this messianic prophecy of the Messiah coming in riding on a donkey. But he was going to come and deliver them and save them in a manner different from what they expected. He would be a king unlike any king they had ever known or ever would know in the future. You know, we think of a donkey as being stubborn and hard-headed pretty much in our culture. We don't think highly of it in our culture. But in the Middle East at this point in history, it was a noble animal used by kings and dignitaries in many, many ways. But the donkey demonstrated peace and humility. You see, when a king came riding on a horse, he was bent on war. He was coming in to rule over you, to conquer you, and make you be his servant. The, the, the horse was a symbol of war and of power and of dominion and dominance. So if Jesus was coming for that kind of political freedom and to announce himself as that Messiah, he would have been riding on a horse. But when a king came riding into your city or your village or your region... On a donkey, that king was coming in peace and humility. And he may have been infinitely stronger than you were, but he was coming to say, I'm not here to hurt you, to beat you into submission, to make you my slave. Maybe we can work out a treaty, an agreement. Maybe we can be friends and partners in this. It was his way of showing humility and peace as he rode to greet you. 
And so here's this image of Jesus very clearly as the Messiah, but riding on the donkey instead of the horse. He wasn't the warrior figure the people were looking for, but he was the prince of peace we see described in Scripture. And Jesus drew this dramatic picture. And when we look at it, we say, I can see that now. But the people didn't get it. They missed it. Even the disciples missed it. Verse 16 says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Have you ever wondered, how could they miss it? I mean, it's not like Jesus didn't tell them it was going to happen. I mean, what, what were they thinking? How could they have been so blind? But remember, now you don't know what happens after this point. And so you're trying to make a decision based on what you see now, about, about what you know, about what you've heard. You didn't see all the miracles. You've not talked to all the people who were healed. You didn't hear all of Jesus' teachings. You're kind of hearing from, uh, from different people and putting pieces of the story together. You didn't have the prophecies all printed out in center column reference so you could cross-reference back to the Torah and see where they were. I mean, you're having to make a real-time decision based on with what limited information information you had and here's what you're trying to decide if this is the messiah am i willing to give my allegiance to this man and go and follow after him regardless of the results of the ramifications it will mean in my life and you may say well well, what would be the results uh, that they would be taking what was the risk that they faced well there was the risk of death Yeah, I mean, a number of false prophets had come saying, I'm the one, come follow after me. And when it proved that they were not the Messiah, what happened? They were killed. And what happened to all of their followers? They were killed as well. As an example to others to say, don't do this. If you are not the Messiah, which, you know, we know that you're not, and they would give their proof, don't claim to be. And they killed those individuals and their followers. Now, death wasn't inevitable, if you went and followed after one of these, but excommunication or being cut off from your family, from your friends, from, from your faith. You, you were excommunicated from the synagogue. You couldn't go there for worship. Uh, you were cut off from your, your family and their social activities. You couldn't go to wedding feasts or, or any kind of get-togethers or activities that went on. They shunned you. People wouldn't come and frequent your business if you pledged allegiance and, and came out in public as following after what was deemed a false messiah uh, by the religious teachers and religious leaders. And so people were cut off. Uh, and that's why we find the uh, parents of the man born blind in John 9 when they were asked, is this your son? What's going on? They said, hey, he's old enough to answer for himself. You ask him. He's a big boy because they didn't want to risk being cut off from the synagogue. They said, you go talk to him. But that brings us to a follow-up question. What keeps people from trusting Christ? Well, the number one reason, I think, is that of fear. That people fear following Christ. In this day, obviously, it was persecution, the potential of death. But we still have many of those fears today. Look in John chapter 12, verse 42. It says, Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue For they loved the praise from men more than praise from God. That's a very powerful, a very telling sentence about the heart of mankind. That we love the praise of men 
more than we fear God or desire praise from God for being obedient to him. And so fear uh, can keep us from stepping out in faith and following after Christ. We saw that with Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who tried to be secret disciples. But you know what they discovered? They discovered there's no such thing as secret discipleship because either the secrecy will kill the discipleship or the discipleship kills the secrecy. You can't be a secret or a closet follower of Jesus Christ. One of those two will win out and indicate the true status and condition of our heart. And you see the disciples and so many who came and placed their faith in Christ. We see here at the end of John chapter 12 that many were placing their faith in Christ. This is before Good Friday. This is before resurrection. They didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle. They didn't have the back end of the information. They stepped out in faith. And we're called to be a people of faith. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. We take that step of faith. And we see many who took that step of faith and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And their faith in him was unshakable. To the point that many of them died a martyr's death. Tradition records for us that all but the, the apostle John died a martyr's death for their faith in Jesus Christ. And John died exiled on the island of Patmos. And countless other thousands have given their lives in the name of Jesus Christ because their faith in him was unshakable when they came to know him and to live their lives fully surrendered to him. It's what led the early church historian Tertullian to write, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And he said that because it seemed like the more blood was spilled of these Christians of these people, the followers of the way of this Jesus, that the more of them they killed, the stronger the church grew and the more expanded. It was like planting a seed in the ground. You know, you kill one, his blood spills, and 50 grow up in his place. Their faith was unshakable when they overcame their fear and stepped out and pledged their allegiance to following Christ, regardless of what it may have cost them. But a second reason that people refuse to follow after Christ is good old-fashioned unbelief. I mean, the religious leaders, uh, they saw Jesus' miracles, they heard his teachings, all of these things, and yet they simply refused to place their faith in him. Well, I want to turn our attentions now to the people in our story who got it about Jesus, if you will. People who understood who he was and what he had come to do. And it's interesting to find that the people who understood and who knew, who could see the things uh, coming to fruition were the religious leaders. You know, everything I just described is taking place within the crowd. But look with me now at verse 19. It says, so the Pharisees said to one another, they're watching all these masses of people go follow Jesus. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Well, what is the this that they're referring to? This is getting us nowhere, they said. Well, to find out, Let's go back to John chapter 11, verse 47. This is the meeting I told you about earlier, where they met together uh, after Lazarus' resurrection. The end of verse 47 says, What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now skip down to verse 53. It says, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. This is all a result of the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. They said, people are going after him. They're continuing to place their faith in him. We must kill this man. And Caiaphas, as they were talking about how to do this, he wasn't being spiritual when he said it was better for one man to die than for the whole nation uh, to be given over. He meant that it was better for the religious leaders because they were collaborating. They were working with the Roman government. And as a result, they were given special social and status and and, and economic uh, privileges and benefits for doing so. So he was saying, it's better for us that one man would die than for him to start a revolt and a rebellion. Then the Romans come in, they're going to squash that. They're going to set up their leaders, their rulers. We're going to lose our position of power, our status, and our influence. So it makes better sense that we kill one man instead of us losing everything that we have. So he wasn't being spiritual uh, in, in his uh, comments here. It was from, more from a spirit of self-interest. And so the religious leaders from then on looked for an opportunity to arrest Jesus so they could at least have him imprisoned, maybe even killed, if at all possible. And they told anyone, if you know where Jesus is, if you know where he's going to be, tell us so we can go arrest him. They didn't want to do it in public because they knew it would create a stir. And their fear was this, that Jesus was going to find a public platform. He was going to find people, a great crowd, and somebody was going to raise their hand and say, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who was going to come or should we look for another one? And Jesus was going to say, yes, I am the Messiah. And they're going to say, what sign or wonder can you give us to tell us that you're the Messiah? And then Jesus would step aside and Lazarus would step forward and say, let me tell you why I think he's the Messiah. I was four days dead, D-E-A-D, dead, dead, dead. And now I'm alive. And let me tell you something. When your star witness is a man who's been dead for four days and is resurrected back to life, you gain some credibility. All right? And so the religious leaders were afraid that's what was going to happen. That Jesus was going to stand up. Somebody was going to ask, are you the Messiah? And he was going to say yes. And it was you know, going to be over for them at that moment. And so after seeing these masses of people welcoming Jesus... They decided that the wait-and-grab-him approach isn't going to work. They said, this is getting us nowhere, meaning they couldn't wait any longer because they were afraid Jesus was going to beat them to the punch. And that's when Jesus revealed that they were right. He was the Messiah. They knew that he had the backing to, to, to demonstrate to the people he was the Messiah. Yet they refused to acknowledge and believe in him. But Jesus says they're right. I am the Messiah. And he does it in John chapter 12, verse 23. Some Greeks are brought to him and they said, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And as they approach, Jesus says this. And many in the crowd heard these teachings, these words in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And John doesn't record it, but it's quite possible that the crowd erupted into applause and cheering at that moment, saying, Yes, I knew it. 
because the Son of Man was a term from the book of Daniel looking forward to the Messiah who would come. And so Jesus just said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And they said, yes, he's here and the time is now. They were excited that Jesus had just said, the time has come. But then he continues on. And they were baffled and bewildered. And this hushed silence fell over the crowd when Jesus said this in verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. A single seed is a single seed and remains one unless it dies. That is, unless it is planted in the soil, covered over in the dark earth, watered, and then allowed for the sun to begin to shine and heat it up and let that seed die to itself and give birth to this plant that's going to grow and produce the fruit of what was contained within that seed. And a seed may hold untold millions of offspring, but unless it dies to itself, it remains that single seed. And so what Jesus is showing and telling us here is that we can only come to him on his terms. And so what are Jesus' terms? It's that we die to ourselves, and that we are resurrected to new life in and through and for him. Everywhere Jesus went in his ministry, there was this contrasting picture of what people wanted. Jesus, do this. Do it this way. Act like this. Say these things. This is how it should go. The religious leaders wanted him to follow their systems, their laws, their ritual, their customs, and their traditions. And Jesus refused. He said, come, follow me. And he told them how they could come to him and invited them and they rejected him to the point they were so upset that they would kill an innocent man because he said, come and follow after me. The crowds wanted Jesus to lead them to military and political dominance. The Bible tells us that on one occasion they tried to to make Jesus king by force. And it says that Jesus turned and he walked away from that crowd. On this day, they tried to exalt him and praise him and say, we trust you. We believe you. We think you're the one. You give the word and we will follow you to our death. But Jesus didn't give the word. He didn't follow their political aspirations and the way they wanted things to be done. And when they realized that he wasn't going to do it, what did they do? In just a matter of days, they would cry out, Set Barabbas free. Crucify Jesus. They turned on him that fast because he wouldn't do what they wanted him to do. Satan tried to entice Jesus into following after uh, his own flesh and his own plan or Satan's ways instead of the ways of God by turning uh, food into uh, stones into bread and giving him power and dominion. But Jesus never batted an eye. You cannot come to Jesus on any terms other than his. No amount of bargaining or pleading or manipulation will work. I mean, you have nothing to bargain with. You can't trick Jesus into following another plan and you can't blackmail him into making an exception in your case and you can't cause him to unwittingly follow after a different plan. You cannot come to him on any terms other than the ones that he sets forth. 
And the religious leaders realized this. They realized Jesus was not going to budge. They couldn't move him. They said, this is getting us nowhere. And I want to tell you that it will get you nowhere as well. Quit trying to follow a Plato Jesus that you mold and you shape and you conform to the image of what you want in a Savior and look to the rock of salvation in Jesus Christ and build your life on him in the way that he has designed and the way he calls you to do it. Everything else you try to build upon in life will leave you hungry and wanting and waiting and unfulfilled. You must surrender your will and your plans and your ways to those of Jesus Christ. In the film Bruce Almighty, Jim Carrey has uh, has given God's powers for several days. And at the end of that time, uh, he finally, at his wit's end, falls on his knees and he calls out in prayer and says, You win. I'm done. Please, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be God. I want you to decide what's right for me. I surrender to your will. Now, I can't advocate the movie and all the things that you see in there, but you know what? That's not a bad prayer that he comes to when he's at his wit's ends, that I surrender, I can't do it, I don't want to do it. Lord, I want you to decide what's right for me. I give up. You can only come to Jesus on his terms. And what are those terms? That you die to self and are resurrected to new life in him. The religious leaders were angry that people were following after Jesus, that they were honoring him and celebrating him and placing their faith in him. And look at the end of verse 19. They say, look how the whole world has gone after him. How ironic. That's why Jesus came in the first place, that the whole world could come to him, that they could follow after him, that they could become his followers. And how do we do that? What are the terms that Jesus sets forth? It's that we admit that we have sinned. We confess our sins. We recognize that we have have disobeyed God and his word and what he's called us to do. We, We admit our sin. And you see, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so because of our sin, we deserve death. But we believe that Jesus died in our place. We should have died because of our sin. Yet Jesus stepped into our place and he was without sin and took our punishment upon him. And so we believe that Jesus died in our place and then we pray to receive Christ. We invite him to come into our lives and to forgive us of our sins and to give us uh, eternal life and then to take control of our life and then seek to live in obedience to him. That's the terms. Those are the terms that Jesus sets for us. Not everyone in this passage looked to Jesus. I told you at the end of the passage there, we read earlier that many of the leaders followed him, but others refused and they wouldn't come to him. But today I ask, what's going to be your choice? What will be your decision? The crowd, the ways of the crowd, the religious leaders and their teaching and their desires, or will it be the way of the cross of dying to yourself and living in and through Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. That's the choice that I set before you today. Are you going to try and come to Jesus on your own terms? If so, I'm going to tell you, friend, it's a losing 
battle? Or are you willing to say, Lord Jesus, I submit, I surrender to you, and I commit myself wholly and completely to you? Again, not just one and done, but on a daily, regular basis in walking with him. Because Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow after me. So will you commit to living your life through him? One of the things about the video that we showed earlier that I hope will, will ring in your mind is that as you go throughout the day and you saw how so many of those different just common things from life, boards and a floor and rocks and, and the, the weather vane that was up there, remind us of the cross. And my prayer for you is that as you go throughout your day, that the Lord will bring your eyes to intersecting lines and remind you of the cross of Jesus Christ and remind you of the choice that you have to make in the course of your day to choose self, the crowd, the ways of the world, or the cross. And then that God would give you the strength to take up your cross and follow him.